Hi there listeners of Illusion, before we start today I'd just like to let you know that we finally have a Patreon account set up. So if you want to support the show financially for as little as $1 a month, then go to patreon.com forward slash nightmarepod, and I promise you every single penny goes back into the show. At the moment we're saving for some new microphones so we can bring you the best podcast we possibly can. Right, now that's out of the way, on with the podcast! Yes, that's right. A whole range of Brill Cream products. Today's men find Brill Cream shampoo leaves their hair wonderfully clean, fresh and healthy. And if you're a man who wants to get to the top, you're all set for success. With Brill Cream Gel, you can always enjoy a neat, smart appearance. Yes, if you're shaving, showering or grooming your hair, use our products. Non-sting soft and gentle works hard to help keep you dry. Soft and gentle works as hard as you play. Welcome listeners of Illusion to Temporal Discussion, the episode-by-episode retrospective podcast about everybody's favourite kids' TV series, Nightmare. I'm Martin Harder, and with only two episodes to go until the end of Series 1, I find it increasingly difficult to come up with jokes about my surname that are fit for broadcast. And I'm Martin O'Doney, and I find it very easy to come up with jokes about his surname that are not fit for broadcast. <laughs> Happy Halloween, by the way, because that's the, uh, the date that we're recording. Anything can happen on Halloween. Your dog could turn into a cat. And today we're looking at Series 1, Episode 7, which is the penultimate episode of the first series. It was originally broadcast on October the 19th, 1987. The Bee Gees were still topping the charts with... <laughs> And move over Axel Foley because Jack Nicholson's horny little devil is topping the UK box office with the Witches of Eastwick. In the quiet town of Eastwick, where nothing ever changes, three beautiful women are about to discover powers they never dreamed they had. Who should we be looking for? He should be really handsome. Nice eyes. Now, the man of their dreams is here. Jane, last we meet. To stay for a spell. Who are you? Just your average horny little devil. With the witches of Eastwick. We could do things you haven't any idea. <laughs> you know what's going on up in that house? She says she sees the devil here in Eastwick. <laughs> If you were the devil, would you come to Eastwick? Oh, I don't know. Are you going to seduce me, too? Women from the 
mistake? Or did he do it to us on purpose? <laughs> Jack Nicholson, Cher, Susan Sarandon, Michelle Pfeiffer. The Witches of Eastwick. Hocus Pocus. Whee! I love this film. I preferred it to Axel Foley. Oh, definitely. Brilliant film. But for me, the standout role isn't Nicholson or any of the three leads. For me, the standout in the film is Veronica Cartwright. Absolutely brilliant actress. Even looks quite good when she's vomiting cherry pips. I can honestly say that is the only time in the history of the English language that that particular combination of words will ever have been used. I'm quite fond of The Witches of Eastwick. I, I, I wouldn't put it up amongst one of my favourites, but um, it is quite good fun. There's definitely a good sort of uh, antagonistic chemistry between Cher and Nicholson that certainly carries a lot of the confrontation scenes very well. And I do have a massive crush on Michelle Pfeiffer. I, I, I can never grow out of it. So for that reason alone, I'm, I'm happy to sit and watch it. And Jack Nicholson has given it his all as well. It was around this time, I think, that Nicholson sort of perhaps just started to descend into self-parody a little bit. I think mean, I mean, he became a bit, a bit conscious of the way he'd become so famous for overacting, he decided to sort of really play it up. I think you're right, but when you have a role like that, it does kind of require a lot of overacting. In fact, the original choice was Bill Murray, who turned it down. Bill Murray, um is notorious for um, being really, really difficult to commit to anything. I can actually say that I think Bill Murray would have been absolutely perfect as the devil in that film. I think I think very good though Nicholson was. Bill Murray would have been able to do it just as well, but with no effort. He is notorious in Hollywood for saying, yes, I'll do something. And then one minute and 30 seconds before recording, he says, actually, I've decided I'm not going to do this after all. Can you go and cast somebody else? Yeah, I think I read somewhere that Murray doesn't actually have an agent. He just has, like, a phone line linked to an answer machine which he occasionally checks that's correct um if you if you go onto youtube during the pandemic lockdowns there was a chat i can't remember what the channel's called but they were actually doing zoom meetings with the cast of great movies from the 90s oh it was um reunited apart with, that's uh, it. with josh gad yeah and the ghostbusters um cast did one of the zoom meetings and bill murray revealed uh well i think actually it was somebody else in the cast revealed it which bill murray probably wouldn't get secret it's actually they're, they're really great those um those zoom meetings i love them and so without further ado let's Let's crack on with the show. Welcome, watchers of illusion, to the castle of confusion. Phase across time with us once more, for this is the age of adventure. Uh, we start off with the dungeon ditty and it was going so well until the end. They crossed the pit and bridged the room, but will they ever make it home? Yes, trying to rhyme home with room. I'm not sure if that actually is an all-time low for bad virtual rhymes in Nightmare, but it runs it bloody close. I can imagine Hugo was given the script. I mean, he must have given Tim Child a very, very black look. Room? Home? Is that all you can come up with? It sounds so awkward, and it sounds like he's trying to rhyme it as well, but it's completely failing. Will they make it home. It doesn't flow off the tongue, does it? No, it doesn't. And it's actually, it's unforgivable if you think about it, because if you think of room, there's so many better rhymes that you can put with it. You come up with something that ends in tomb, for instance, which would keep it completely in the dungeon context as well. Why they copped out like that, I really don't know. Or even they could say, like, will, will the team meet their doom or something? Yeah, that would work, you know. When they created the first uh, pilot for testing out the format, 
the actual name they gave it was just Dungeon Doom. Any reference to Doom um, is absolutely perfect for an episode of Nightmare. One thing I will say, it may be a terrible taste in rhymes, but the production crew's imagination is clearly starting to um, really get into gear now because the variety of rooms and the variations in how the rooms are stocked out throughout the dungeon are both massively improving now. It's becoming the exciting show that we remember. And now time turns, the fire burns, time out is gone. Last week we left Richard in a rather messy looking four doors chamber. There are a number of symbols strewn all over the floor, including a bomb, a key, and a chalice. All the doors are locked with symbols matching those on the floor, all except the fourth door, that is, which is marked fire exit. Treyguard informs the team that fire exit is kept unlocked for obvious reasons. He also suggests that they should choose a sign symbolic of a true quest. What's obvious to him may not actually be obvious to us. It's one of those really, really obvious ones you can look see through with it when it's there. Think fire exit. If they step through that door, obviously it's going to be um they're going to get burned to death in some way on the other side. So that might be what he means by obvious. Jonathan seems to be emerging pretty quickly as the alpha advisor, although he does have some competition from the others. If there was a problem with this team early on, it's that they're a little bit too decisive for their own good. It speeds the program up, which is great, but um there's very little discussion of which symbol to use before Jonathan starts guiding Richard to the cup, um, and uh, one of the other advisors even into interrupts and says well hang on a minute hang on but they just fly through it anyway yeah i do enjoy this team and the main thing i kind of take away from them from this episode is that they're having fun they're they're enjoying themselves it's not dull because of them if, if, if there are any dull moments in the quest it's despite them rather than because of them the team guide richard over the chalice through the corresponding door and into the next chamber right that's it just keep going yeah keep, keep going just keep, keep going walk you're all right shuffle that's it keep going where am i you're in a room with an exit on the right and a table in front of you so you've seen the place before Ew, it's the level one clue room as usual now, even one of the advisors uh, makes a somewhat sarky uh, reference to having seen this place before. So it's now becoming quite clear that by the time of recording, Nightmare had definitely started broadcasting to the nation. You know, it's when he says it, he gets a, like this little snide smile on his face as well. Yeah, I think it's Paul, I think, I think it was the one who says it. Anyway, on the table this time, there is a very obvious red herring, again, in the shape of a red herring. There's also a block of soap, a bar of gold, a key, and some bread. Richard puts the bread in the knapsack, and then Treyguard reminds the team that the room will be guarded and any clothes must be earned. I am Granitas of legend. I have riddles of different kinds of different legends, and truth I seek. What's the count now? How many times is it Granitas and how many times is it Olgarth? It was Olgarth, then Granitas, then Olgarth, then Granitas, then Granitas again because of the uh, frost action. Hmm. And I think it's Granitas again. It's overwhelmingly Granitas, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's 4-2 to to Granitas. Well, that'll probably explain why you were so sure that Granitas appeared in the first episode. 
Yeah, that probably is why. Yeah, was, uh, by the time season two started the following year, I'd actually forgotten that Olgarth existed. And I think the reason why is not just because he looks the same, but also because Gremitas has been used almost every quest by the end of season one. I think they pretty much phased Olgarth out in the end. He was still in season two as well. Gramitas, then Igneous, then Olgarth, then Igneous, then Gramitas, then Igneous. Then Olgarth. It, would go, it would go around like that. Igneous was appearing most of all now, and he became the sort of dominant war monster in season two. Can we talk about the mask and the image here? Because it's definitely getting a lot clearer, and the mask definitely has more degrees of movement to it. Do you think it's the same mask or? I think it's the same one. I don't doubt they made adjustments to it to make it more comfortable and, and more flexible for the wearer. They wouldn't really have had to make any changes to the front of it, the, the bit that faces the camera, but they would have been able to sort of readjust the size inside by gouging out little bits of it and maybe adding in some padding onto the inside so that it exactly matches the contour of Guy Stanley's face. Like so many things in the first season, it was experimental and they were finding out what works well and what doesn't. And as as always, the team need to answer three riddles. It swims in water, but isn't a fish. It fells great trees, but isn't an axe. Its coat is costly, but it isn't a mink. What is it then? I love Fregard's clue here as well. You'll be damned if you don't get this one, team. Firstly, this is yet another example of a team of advisors not quite paying attention again. The obviousness of that clue really should have the sort of going, yes, now I know. I mean, instead, they just ignore him and ask for the riddle to be repeated. It's never advisable to ignore the dungeon master. There's also an issue of swearing here. Nowadays, it's an extremely mild example, but the word damned is actually technically a swear word. I don't think anybody really cares about it these days compared to words like fuck or sh or c or or I've got a long list I'll be back I'll just I'll just go and fetch my list and go for it there's gonna be a lot of goblin horns there <laughs> You get the idea, though. Yeah, but technically it's a swear word, so you do actually think Nightmare could have been in a little bit of trouble for actually including that. And you notice, by the way, listening to Granitas, he sounds really dangerously irritated at being asked to repeat the riddle. I will repeat once only. Well, you notice here, actually, there's real attempts to hurry the riddle contest along. Well, especially in the first half of the episode, they're trying to hurry everything, it seems. Yeah, probably because they realise that the season is running out of time and they may not be able to fit everything in. The answer to the first riddle, before we forget, by the way, is Beaver. Second riddle. You, you may not see him anymore, this fabled creature had a flaw. He could gallop fast, but could not float. Don't ask me why I'm changing voice in the middle of sentence here, by the way. And worst of all, he missed the boat. After watching this episode of Nightmare, I wrote a poem for school about the unicorn, and it got read out in assembly. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> That's basically the whole story. I write quite a bit, as you know. And what I find is, when I'm trying to find motivation to write, I'm trying to find inspiration to write, it's not praise that I get for the stuff I write today. You know, if, I, if I put up a blog post and it gets over 4,000 views, I'll pat myself on the back, but I don't take any inspiration from it. What I get inspiration from is the occasion when I got 9 out of 10 in school for a, a bit of French homework I did, which turned into quite a funny little mini sketch that I did for it. It's a weird thing. People actually, even in, in the advanced adulthood, take more inspiration from getting a round of applause from their teachers at school than they ever do for anything they accomplish when they're adults. So the team give the correct answer of Unicorn, and Olgarth poses the third and final riddle. In the scriptures, if you read them... There's more than Adam's ale in Eden. So answer if you have the courage. 
what drink was made from the fruit of knowledge? Right, I have issues with this. So they're basing it on the assumption that the fruit of knowledge was an apple. So the answer, according to them, is cider. But it's never stated anywhere in the Bible that the fruit was an apple. In fact, it is actually suggested that it's grape-like. So the actual answer should be wine rather than cider or apple juice. Do you remember a few weeks ago we were discussing things that aren't there in the first radio series of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, like towels? The same phenomenon with the Bible. The snake is often assumed to be the devil um, in the Garden of Eden. But it's not. And this is another one of those things. It doesn't actually mention in the Bible that the forbidden fruit that Eve supposedly ate was an apple. Yeah, most of our um, assumptions about the Garden of Eden and the apple and the snake, they actually come from later artwork. Once again, it's um, you can give the series a bit of license, I suppose. But like with some of the riddles we were mentioning earlier in the season, the answer they're actually coming up with, are, they're urban myths, which the series is sort of maintaining. It'd be interesting to know if they would have allowed the answer if the Dungeoneer had said wine instead of cider. I would suspect it wouldn't. One thing I would rather like to do, and something I might might well do at some point, is um, research all the riddles in Nightmare and see how many there are that are based on urban myth, um, and therefore the um, the correct answer for them is wrong. How many of them have actually got the wrong correct answer attached to them? Remember Excalibur earlier in the season, which was said to be the sword in the stone. No, it wasn't. So it can always get away with it because so much of this is based on legend and myth anyway. But um, what the official story is, it can surprise people. And it seems um, the people creating the riddles on Nightmare didn't actually research it very well. Oh, Paul. Yes. I think it's... um... Yes. I think it's cider because... It was the apple. Truth accepted. Yes, yes. Well done, Richard. Uh, he accepts the uh, cider answer from Richard here when it, Richard was clearly conferring with the advisors, and he just says, Truth accepted because his guy stand even is clearly in a hurry. <laughs> well, it could be quite confusing because he's obviously hearing the advisors in his earpiece or whatever. Uh, so it, maybe it's, it's just confusing as to who's who. I don't think so. No, the, um, the fact that, they, that, that he can hear the advisors means that it's clear to, it should be clear to him that they are still conferring at that point. But he just wants to hurry it up. Mm. And why not? It's, it's the right answer. Well, it's officially the right answer. So, yeah, hurry it along. You notice at some points when Treyguard is uh, trying to speak to the team during this that they the team do rather speak over him a bit. Mm. And on one occasion, you can actually hear one of them saying shush at him. Richard, you must call out, I command you. I command you. It might be they're saying shush to each other. I'm not sure. Um, But it's while he's speaking, somebody definitely goes shush. (laughs) So three is the score. The door to head are open and the key is as useless as the fish. The team got a perfect score on command Granitas to give them more information. They're told to give the gold to her who lies in wait and keep the soap for your escape. They take the gold and the soap and leave the chamber. That's it, just keep going. Where am I? You're in a room. There's a giant and there's a giant snake in the room coming out of half a door. Which is broken. Which is broken down. It's the room of worms again. It's uh, a different video recording of the snake this time, but uh, everything about the, the, the that was failing before is still failing. Yeah, it's basically just walk around it again and just uh, make they make very short work of the obstacle as before. At least this chamber has been different every time, in a way. Oh yeah, it's sometimes I had a scorpion in it instead, which is a nice spectral scorpion. When it's the snake room, it's always been a different snake, or at least a different video of the snake anyway. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it's a different snake too. I don't really... St- 
see it as being very likely that any of the snakes are going to get their agents to write any complaints <laughs> about not giving them credit where it's due. So. Where am I? You're in a room with um, a chasm. A chasm in front of you. And there's a bridge keeps and there's appearing. And a bridge keeps appearing and, and disappearing. disappearing. Stop, 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 stop. Span the pit and cross the zone. Rock to rock and... Oh, thank goodness you're here at last. All right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I say it or do you want to say it? You, you say it, um, but I've got a response ready for okay. it. Lilith Causeway has the jitters and she is in need of a man with a big tool. <laughs> yes, this whole scene really does sound like the start of a blue movie about a housewife and plumber, doesn't it? It is the most cliched scenario in all of pornography, apparently, I should stress. <laughs> Despite how suggestive the overall scenario she's coming up with is, this is still by no means the most suggestive scene Lilith's ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, where are your tools? Get them out. I'm almost waiting for him to say, get them out for me. Mm. Uh, I don't think we really need to say too much more about that, actually, do we? It's um, Once again, it's Lilith, and once again, that she's not quite talking appropriately to young boys. So she tells him this time that it doesn't matter what the gift is, that she, they just have to give it to her. Um, phrasing? Yeah, so she does it, she does it to us. <laughs> She wasn't even trying that time, and she still got us talking in the most outrageous double meanings. She sees that Richard is carrying a gift and says that just this once, it doesn't matter what it is. And I'm wondering if she would say the same thing if he had just flopped a herring into her hands. I get the feeling that they'd have um, scripted that scene to um, operate quite differently. Um, if she'd seen him carrying a fish, she'd have started acting like she could smell something horrible and then just blow away the ledge to destroy him then and there because how dare you bring such a foul-smelling item into my domain. It's not a great scene, really. It's not, it's not one of Lilith's better scenes. It's very rushed. It's one of the problems, that, again, is to feel like they're trying too hard to speed things up. They're not bothering too much over what the object is that they, that they hand over to Lilith. But the thing is, they're speeding everything up, not just because it's coming towards the end of the series, but also because they've got this big long scene coming up that, as fun as it is, slows everything down to a crawl. Well, what comes up later, you do rather wonder what they were thinking about by suddenly having that massive set piece scene early in level two. As becomes very clear during the eighth episode, they have to cut some scenes out anyway. I'll point out how, how we know that when we get there. There was something very, very off about the pacing throughout this quest. And as a result of it, a lot of the scenes do feel very, very rough-edged, even by the standards of season one. Richard hands the gold to Lilith, who says it'll pay for the plumber. Oh, God! Quick, now watch a bit! Where am I? Right, you, Richard, you in a... Oh, dear! That will teach you to walk down a monster's throat. And now see where you are, trapped in its stomach. Well, there's only one way out of here. Well, two actually. We won't go Just like the last quest, Richard has ended up in the monster's stomach. This time, though, soap is used in a place of salt to give the monster a stomach upset. We even get a nice little close-up of Richard rubbing the soap on the stomach lining. Yeah, used, I'm not sure it is nice, actually. I think, I think it's always a mistake when they do close zoom-ins like that in the early years because it really exposes the high pixelation of the uh, CGI backgrounds 
resolution on chroma on chroma key certainly in the first three series was extremely low compared with what you'd have today or even what you'd have had in the later seasons question is are we only noticing that because we're watching it back on high definition monitors oh, i noticed it at the time the first time i really really noticed it was actually back in 1988 when there was a projection of merlin in level three and they did a zoom in on his face and i saw the backgrounds and it, it was like a patchwork quilt behind him. It's a, it really, really destroyed the illusion for me because um, all of a sudden these solid, well-defined images suddenly became very, very blurred and very stretched out. And as I thought, no, you mustn't do that. You should really need to get as little of the background in as possible if you're going to do a zoom in like that. Make sure that um, th that that illusion is not shattered completely. Treyguard's line here is rather amusing, I think, uh, even though once again we're ed entering the world of gross. Only one way out of here, well, two actually, but we won't go into that. <laughs> no, please don't. It gives the team a giggle, at least, and the audience. <laughs> yes, it's again, it's just 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 veering towards towards the um the side of unnecessary grossness. But yes, the soap works. <laughs> What am I? You're in a long passageway with four doors, two on your left, two on your right. They land in the great corridor of the catacomb. Oh yes, it's the great corridor of the catacomb. But it disappoints time after time. Trigger talks it up. But it's drifting at the stop And yes, that was the virtual ride Now this um, is Caesar's appearance of an actual entity in the Great Corridor of the Catacomb. It's a shadow demon, and it's making this horrible gurgling sound, and it's very creepy. But once again, the threat is completely nullified by the fact that all the monster is actually doing is moving from left to right, more or less on the spot, and doesn't appear to be able to move forward in any way towards the Dungeoneer. Treyguard is once again exaggerating the threats of the corridor out of all proportion. As far as I can remember, no Dungeoneer ever actually died in there without a goblin threat in Season 3. It is a big disappointment over last week's corridor i think last week's was definitely better yeah it's, it's not bad that they varied it up a bit though to make sure it's not just one thing every single time what they really need to do is um create more animation for these creatures that appear so they can start advancing towards the dungeoneer even if they're doing it slowly and there's no final animation where it attacks the dungeoneer as long as it's getting closer at least there's some kind of menace then i don't think we had anything like that in the hand-drawn days i think the only example i can think of is when the wall started moving that arguably is when the corridor was at its most threatening and it still didn't exactly have you running to the toilet in fear did it richard leaves by the left-hand door which has a grail in front of it what am i you're in the big room on your right and in front of you there are big boulders you've just come through a door i can't see another one richard has emerged in what we recognize very clearly as the wellway cavern but there is no well visible and just when you thought things weren't quite frustrating enough <laughs> And again, if you listen to the advisors careful at this point, they recognise the jester. So again, considering he didn't make his first appearance until episode four, that suggests this episode is probably only about three weeks ahead of 
broadcast time at this point. <laughs> I love Polly's question and Richard's answer. <laughs> Almost without thinking. Do you like old jokes? No. <laughs> <laughs> I must um, take issue with Folly here. He says, he then claims that this is a brand new joke. And then he asks the really, really ancient when is a door not a door joke. Now, it might have been brand new in the uh, early years of the 13th century. Um, I don't think it was. I think we can definitely have Folly down under the Trades Descriptions Act at the very, very least. Folly continues. Tell me, when is a well not a well? When it's ill. Mm-mm. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Look, just to prove to you that even a fool knows the answer, a fool will give it to you. The answer is, when well is a spell. And now, the master said that I was dumb, and that is what I now become. I rather like um, the answer they come up with for it. I'd say, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give you a spell for that. The well spell, of course, which Folly gives them here, while turning himself to stone, apparently, which sounds like what he was saying. Um, the well spell is, of course, the one that uh, Team 5 uh, had, but uh, weren't able to use properly because they never got to the well chamber. I must give um, kudos to Alec Westwood, the, the actor playing Folly. Um, he managed to maintain that completely frozen, solid pose Oh, he was wobbling quite a lot. Well, he's not actually. Look closely. It's not him. It's the decorations and bells on his costume that are shaking around. This is, there's muscular tension, but for the most part, Alec is actually standing very still. The pose with his right arm in particular is a really painful one to hold. So he, he stands impressively still. Bell casting. W-E-L-L. <laughs> Hello, Richard. Hello. Yeah. Uh, there's a well appeared in front of you a bit to the left. It then takes the team an eternity to figure out what to do with it. No, turn, turn a bit to the left. Come on, team, you'll be delighted. No, right, tiny. No, yeah, that's it. No, forward. forward. Hurry up. It's the only way up. Quick. Yeah. Can you see the well? Yeah, watch inside it. Quickly get in before get your life goes to I love the way that Richard thinks he's literally climbing into a well. <laughs> Quickly! That's it. <laughs> Where am I? You're in uh, a large room with a skeleton. And underneath him is a coin. Oh, pie. We're back in the... Uh, alternative four-door chamber that we started the, the quest in, in level one. But on this occasion, it's in probably its greatest format because it's the catacomb bite's nest. And it looks like Richard has disturbed the catacomb bite's dinner. And it wouldn't be a particularly satisfying dinner because the only thing he's got for dinner seems to be a tart of some kind. No excuse to just nick it from right out in front of him, though. Very impolite to disturb someone's dinner in this way by jumping out of the ceiling like this and sort of landing in front of them and just about to tuck into a nice jam tart or a strawberry pie or whatever it is. The uh, advisors get very panicky here. Wouldn't you? <laughs> And I've got to say that once again, the Dungeoneer gets away with it because Richard definitely makes contact with the Catacomb Bites Talon at one point. It doesn't help that he momentarily forgets his left from his right. 
morally you'd have to say they seriously got away with that there you also notice that when they pick up the pie a big chunk of it gets left on the floor behind i wonder what that was so it, it means the catacomb bite was fed after all in, in a in a manner yeah just a little bit that's a kind of a nightmare socialism gone well that's right where am i you're in a cavern with a table in front of you and slightly to your right and in front of you there's a box with a man sitting on it and he's got a long stick in his hand in his hands and there's something on the table in front of you yeah. can you see what it is it's a pair a right. pair take the, oh, take the pair and leave that grab alone okay now this is the oddest scene in all of the first season and it sets a lot of new precedents but uh, let's set up the background first, shall we? We're in Cedric's chamber. There's a pear on the table. Richard goes to pick up the pear and then nearly jumps out of his skin when Cedric yells at him to leave it alone. We seem to be going through very, very familiar routine initially. Treyguard informs Richard that he must say, I challenge, etc., etc. Cedric reminds him of the riddle contest rules. All is going very, very much according to formula at this point. And then everything changes. And it does rather daze you if you haven't seen this before it does seem to come out of nowhere it does um and i have to make the point this team were very lucky in level two and this scene is one of the reasons why they were very lucky because they didn't really have to do anything which is a bit unfair on the other teams but anyway i've checked so this is the longest scene in season one it's the first major set piece scene in the history of the series it's the first time two of the dungeon characters appear in the same scene there have been scenes when Treyguard and Lilith have both been on the screen at the same time but Treyguard isn't actually a dungeon character and we're not counting Casper it has to be a physical act of actually wandering around on the set um it's the first time that Cedric is beaten without the dungeon having to win a riddle contest it's the first time a challenge takes the form of anything other than a riddle contest. I think that is actually just about all of them. So you can't accuse Nightmare of not trying to stretch out its uh, possibilities. And it's clearly happy to test itself and see where it can reach. The business about two dungeon characters, that happens all the time in season two. This is the first time they tried it in season one and it's pretty clear they liked it. What are we talking about? All of a sudden, out of nowhere, we get... But you're welcome to... Fiddledy-dum, shaking your shoes for a paladin comes. Scuttle off, you strolling joke! And Folly walks out of one of the cavern walls and arrives in the chamber, announcing himself as a paladin and totally disrupting the riddle contest that Cedric was preparing. Serious business is going on here! Any case, you ain't no paladin! How dare you! Folly says that he's distressed by this accusation and he demands satisfaction. Cedric objects initially to being challenged because he's already facing a challenge. But Folly insists that uh, Cedric has effectively challenged him by being so rude to him, so he should have priority. Now, as Cedric effectively gave the challenge, that means that Folly gets the choice of weapons. Cedric lists off a possible array of weapons he can choose to fight with, and Folly rejects all of them. His choice? Insults. Yes! You may think this sounds like a very, very, very stupid idea. To me, it sounds like a very, 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 very famous video game. But it actually predates Monkey Island by about three years. I'm convinced Monkey Island stole it from Nightmare, in fact. Oh, without doubt, it was definitely an influence. As, as I was saying, you might think it's a stupid idea for a challenge, but then you stop and think about it and think, well, yeah, but aren't riddles a stupid idea for a challenge? Why not? 
let's just go with it and see where this takes us. And this hands a huge lucky break for Richard as he has to do very little to get through level two from here, thanks to what follows. The tone of the scene seems a bit juvenile again, perhaps. But the truth is, especially Lawrence Werber, both the actors are doing really well. But Lawrence Werber in particular performs it with so much gust. Oh, God, he's brilliant. So uh, sometimes the laughter from the advisors sounds a little bit forced, as though they're trying to pretend they find it funny to please the adults, so to speak. But, um, yeah, it, it, it kind of works. I think there's some genuine laughs from them there. There's some funny bits. Some of the insults are genuinely quite funny. Um, uh, I think my favourite um, is Cedric's third one. I think that was my favourite of the, of the insults. Look out for a rubbishy virtual rhyme again, by the way. Also look out for the second Ooh Nasty of Nightmare History. And Folly calling Cedric a Burke, which, as we all know, is part of rhyming slam, Berkeley Hunt. There's a couple of issues about some of Folly's riddles. We'll come to a bit of analysis. Let's, let's firstly uh, listen in to a few of the uh, sound clips of yeah. the insult contest. <laughs> Round one, fight! Then quail, you miserable, misbegotten remnant of a recently discarded horse cropping! And its first blood to the guard, no sophistication here, but a very powerful insult, and it's clearly shaken folly. He's down a bit, but not yet out, and now it's his turn to make a hit. <laughs> Hail to thee, O throckless priest, with rusted honour and brain diseased. When awards are given out for thickness, you sweep the board for sheer ineptness. Oh dear, oh dear, extra style points here for rhyme, but not strong enough by half. The monk leads as they go into round two. Round two, fight! Pathetic! You remind me of the odour from a recently launched gun boil! Anik boom! Nasty, and the monk's calling on all his experience now. Rude, but very effective. Polly's in trouble. Listen, Fleetwit. When your mother saw your mean, she bethought it was a sewer drain. Your father looked upon your face, and he left at once for the crusades. That makes them burn! and a lovely shot from Polly! And the monk was clearly hurt by that one. No need to get personal. out of place this scene don't you and i'd agree with that i think it feels out of place that doesn't mean i don't love it i find myself drawn into it in spite of it it does stop the whole quest for a full six minutes i'm not completely sure about Treyguard's attempts to be the commentator yeah i think they sound too out of character yeah very much so i think he's trying to do a mock john motson there 
couple of observations. Cedric, after getting hit by that rather smart second insult, it wasn't as great an insult as Treyguard makes it out to be, but it, it was definitely stronger than the feeble first one. Cedric's response is extraordinary to me. He says, no need to get personal. Cedric, it's an insult contest. If you aren't allowed to get personal when you're doing an insult contest, when can you? My favourite insult is Cedric's third one. I thought that was very clever. And it was actually a proper rhyme, and it was a clever rhyme. They sent him here to do your job. I think that's wonderful. That was brilliant. Although, again, it doesn't really rhyme. It's actually rhyming with clod, which actually ends in D. One other observation... There is some quite questionable, borderline racist language for Folly's final insult, if you listen to it. Maltese and Turk mm. are both being used as pejoratives. Yes. Um, and it's one of those moments where you just think they wouldn't get away with that today. Well, they wouldn't do it nowadays. I very often the opinion that it's historical attitudes and attitudes have changed for the better now. I don't find the way Cedric pretends that he's been broken by Foley's insults all that convincing. I felt sorry for him. The problem is it actually affects the way the quest continues afterwards. So you need that reaction to be a little bit more real than that. Not necessarily serious, but more real. What we got here is because Folly wins the insults duel, he transfers his victory in the challenge to Richard, so Richard gets any reward he wants out of it. And that totally changes the course of level two. Do you get the impression that they were shooting for this team to win? So they could at least get one winning quest? I think they were definitely shooting for him to get to level three. Actually to win? Mm, no, probably not. Overall, the scene does hint very well at the potential for using multiple dungeon characters in complex scenes, character-driven scenes as well. It's not done all that well in this instance because it definitely carries on a bit too long. It's likeable as a scene, but it's completely incongruous with what's around it. And it wants to be funny, but sometimes is, sometimes isn't. And now, all this vulgar hostility has quite worn me down. I'm off for a rest. Bye. Richard, Bye. say thank you. <laughs> say thank you. Oh, never mind. Okay, young dungeon here. Oh, it's off to the grub. Right, Richard. Um, yeah, hold on. I'll give you a password for this level. The password is Cyclops. Cyclops. Uh, Cyclops. I'd come with you if I could, but that scummy just has worn me down, so I'll just stay here. Like Richard. Get me confidence back. Yeah. Take the food. Can you take the food? Yeah. I know you're going. Put it in your knapsack. Right. I command you. No, you don't. Right, turn right, please. Right. Walk forward a little way. It might work. Just keep going. Because you've got the password. Right, keep going. The team are treated to the daunting sight of the Hall of Spears, but before they even have time to give a description... Warning team, a complete temporal disruption approaching. Time is now the enemy. Oh dear. A temporal disruption complete. So, in the corridor of Spears... Oh, uh, in actual fact, um, I lost that... Uh, Poll, didn't I? According to um, Alan Boyd, uh, the correct name is the Spears Room, which sounds painfully boring. He put up a photo of uh, the experimental artwork from David Rowe's book on Twitter, and, and it says it's it's the Spears Room. And I also want to say thank you to Alan, because he's been quite a joy to interact with on Twitter. He's been quite a laugh. He is a laugh. He is a laugh, definitely. Thank you, Alan. Alan Boyd, in case anybody at home don't know, he runs um, Nightmare.com. 
and he was a dungeoneer in season eight on a winning team, no less. Good sport as well. There weren't many winning teams, so he must be doing something right. So anyway, that is the end of the penultimate episode of Nightmare Season 1. We've raced through these, haven't we? It's hard to believe it's already seven episodes in the can. Yeah. Most impressive. So, yeah, what did you think? As I was saying earlier, there's there's something very weird about the pacing of this quest. Yeah, it is all over the place. It continues to be a problem in the next episode as well, I should stress, but it, it most profoundly and most jarringly comes across here because they're zipping through the first level scenes and then they get to the second level and suddenly the brakes grinds really, really sharply, bringing everything to a halt. So you can have this six minutes set piece. Rather than just surprise surprising the audience it really throws the audience you don't know what gear your brain should be in shall we say it's going so fast for the first few rooms that you can't keep up with it and then just as you finally manage to catch up with it suddenly everything slows down and the rushed stuff it just doesn't come across right at all especially Lilith's chamber I, I have a real issue with the way they dealt with that there's issues all over all over the episode I think does that make it a bad episode I, w- I wouldn't say so I, I, I find it very difficult to say what is a bad episode of Nightmare or what makes a good episode of Nightmare. I once started um, a a discussion on the Nightmare.com forum asking what makes a good episode of Nightmare, what makes a bad episode of Nightmare. Nobody could really answer it. It does feel like it's an episode that hasn't been finished. You know, the the old saying of a movie is never finished, it's only abandoned. I feel like that's probably true of this episode. The editors probably gave up about halfway through and just said, right, that's down to the right length, put it on air. Yeah, I think you're right there. What did you think of it? Um, I completely agree, actually. Um, Everything you've said is basically everything I would have said. I think the tone is all over the place. I think it has bad points, but it also has its really good points as well. The insult thing whilst going on for way too long is entertaining and fun. Anyway, that's all we've got time for today. We've reached the end of the episode of Nightmare and we've reached the end of our episode of the podcast. Yes, yeah, so happy Halloween, even though by the time you hear this, it'll be late November. Don't go trick-or-treating because we are in lockdown. We Be good ki- kids. Again, there's no point in me giving this instruction because you won't do it until long after Halloween's over, but I'm saying it anyway. So anyway, though, uh, that was episode seven. Join us soon for the conclusion of season one. Before we go, I'd just like to say, if you like the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at NightmarePod. And if you'd like to email us, you can email us on BroomCupboardClub at gmail.com. We'll see you next time for the last episode of season one. And in the meantime, don't have nightmares. Just watch them instead. Yeah.